we sent an email off uh, saying, uh, hey, Josh, what's, uh, what would it cost us to get a second sub for in the theater? And Josh took that as, hey, Josh, get us a second sub. And, uh, and so, you know, God kind of decided that for us that we'd have a second sub, and it answers the question for me whether God likes rock and roll music or not. So uh, I'm kind of excited. Um, I had Kip leave the last line of that song up because in some sense uh, everything in the next half hour really is summed up kind of in that, that phrase right there. And I hope that as we get down that road that we'll grasp what this whole relationship with God is about. Uh, but we're going to do something different. Let me go ahead and open in prayer and then uh, we'll start off. Father God, we just commit this morning to you. And as we... Uh, several of us prayed earlier. We just hope that you would take this community and just ratchet it up, and that we would be drawn closer to you, and not just for a morning, not just uh, while the lights are down and while we're singing, but that uh, this community and the individual hearts in this community would somehow get pulled closer and deeper into a relationship with you. And we pray that just that you would work that in us this morning, in Christ's name, amen. Um, I'm a, it's kind of an interesting thing. I've, I keep telling people this story about Antioch, and, and it's kind of a funny one to me, but uh, about four or five months ago, I really, it really became clear to me, and I really began to see that everything wrong with Antioch was directly related to me, like all the problems, all the things that kind of went sideways, like I can tell you exactly what I did to make that go wrong. And then all the good things, because it took a while, you know, you get into a church and over time you begin to see things happen uh, either instantaneously or over time. And, and I, I finally just came to this point where looking at it, I realized all the good things had come from like uh, out of left field, left field. Um, just people that had come in, uh, things that just took us by surprise, just circumstances and that that was all God stuff. And so over a course of a couple of weeks, and this is months ago, it just, it just kind of evolved into this clear black and white picture for me that everything that was wrong was, with Antioch was me, and everything that was right with Antioch was God. And it was kind of this cool moment where I kind of got to just laugh at myself and say, okay, I get it, okay? Uh, it's, it's about you, God, and what you're doing. And so I'm just going to stay here screwing everything up. And, and making mistakes if you just keep doing what you're doing. Um, but one of the mistakes that I made, one of the biggest mistakes I think I, I regularly make is I'm a big picture person. I love the big picture. I love the lay of the land. I love to know what's going on. I love seeing all the puzzle pieces. And because I sit in the offices all week long, I have all that information and I see it all. And so I don't share it with anybody else like I don't communicate it because I just think it's so obvious and I'm so immersed in it that everybody else is going to know what I know and see what I see and and so everybody's got all the pieces everyone knows the lay of the land and that's just not the case and so what I thought I'd do this morning is uh, for a good 10 minutes before we get into the the message is just kind of give you the lay of the land for the next year and some of the things that are shaping up and just try and sketch out that picture so that if you're like me and you do like that big picture you kind of can get a handle on just where we're going and what's happening. So I had a little, I don't know if, I, I forgot to give it to Kip this morning, but I have a little PowerPoint, um, and so I thought I could just use this and, and not forget some things, but I'll just walk through it and share just kind of what's happening. 
And the first thing here is family camp. Uh, it's it's not just one of those announcements we make and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I heard that last week or that was in the newsletter. This is the first ever family camp. And it's like it's it, to me, it sets up the future of this church. And so if you can't go for the whole weekend, go for all day Saturday, but go and build relationships. Uh, those of you that feel like, man, there's so many new faces and I don't know them or there's so many people that don't know me. And this is our chance to do that. Uh, kids under the age of, I think, three are free. All the meals are included. It's a big deal that way. Um, we're looking, Brandon wanted me to, uh, I guess the word is that, that there's a lot of college kids and, and single kids that need help getting there. And so if you would like to contribute to kind of a scholarship fund so that we can get some people there that have financial needs, uh, we'd love it. You can write it on your little uh, info card. You can come see myself or Brandon afterwards, but we're trying to set up a scholarship fund. And... To kind of give you the rest of the family camp picture, here's a video that the team worked on this week. So, This is Kip. Kip is having a horrible day. He woke up late and got chewed out by his boss. Then he got made fun of at church. That doesn't bother Kip because he's going to family camp. August 3rd through the 5th, where he can get back at everyone with paintball and the will of wrath. He knows that however miserable the summer may be, family camp will make up for it all. So don't let life get you down. Come to family camp, August 3rd through the 5th. Alright, so uh, that's family camp. Be like Kip. Um, the next thing uh, I think just coming up, and we haven't really talked about it a whole lot, but on August 12th, we're going to do a baptism service. And basically the idea is that we would walk out of this theater and leave your cars where they're at, and we would walk along the river down to kind of where Farewell Bend Park is. If you go just past that, there's this little beach area, and we would do a baptism service right after the main service that morning. And this is a big deal to me for a couple reasons. One, it's the first uh, baptism service we're doing. Two, I I think it's so cool when you can get baptized in a river or a lake or something like that outdoors. It just it just has something symbolically to it that I think is really cool. And then lastly, this is the big deal for me is, um, you know, and this is going to come out in the sermon a little bit actually. Um, but we we don't do a lot of uh, you know come forward up front here and and make a, a decision or a commitment. Um, we, we don't do a lot of that stuff. I get a lot of questions about that. But to me, this, this baptism service, those of you that God has been stirring your hearts and he's begun to speak to you and you're, you're like, man, there's a relationship I've got going with God and it's burning in me. And this, this here is that, that thing that the New Testament gives us, that picture or that symbol that you get to participate in that really solidifies publicly what you're about and who you're about and what God's doing in your life. This is kind of that thing. And so I have this dream of seeing like 15 to 20 adults getting baptized. And to me, all the the work, the team and everybody else and and this whole church has put into the things that we're doing at that service, watching people commit their lives to Christ in baptism like that kind of makes it all worth it. It's, It's kind of those... You know, as a dad, you see, you have some of those moments with kids where, 
it just brings a smile to your face and you're like, this is why all the late nights and all the pukey days and like it's all worth it for this right here, you know, this moment. And I think that's kind of the thing with baptism services. It It's that moment where it all comes together and, and we all kind of smile and say, this is worth, you know, all the hard work. This right here makes it worth it. And so if God really has been stirring in your life, you've never been baptized, you'd like to get baptized, uh, I'd love for you to write it. If you put your email and write baptism on the bottom of that info card, I'll email you. If you come find me, I'll get you on the list. Uh, and then I'll send out an email to everybody at some point. We've already got eight people, eight adults signed up. Um, so I'm I'm just kind of excited about this coming up. I hope you would be too. Um, and if you haven't been baptized, we'd love to have you join us in that. In uh, August, we'll have the, the applications for Uganda. We almost had the dates yesterday, but you know it didn't come together yesterday. So next Sunday, you'll probably have a prayer card in the bulletin telling you when the next uh, the next trip to Uganda is going to be, so that you can be praying about that. And so that's in August. In September, uh, we're doing this thing. It's, we're calling it a relaunch. It doesn't mean we screwed it up the first time, so we have to redo it. What it means is basically. This will be, when we hit that kind of one-year mark, it's the last time we'll ever really be a brand-new church. And I think it's important because as we look down the road, you know, a decade or two decades and say that we don't want to get into ruts and we don't want to get into routines and we don't want to take our community for granted, this is kind of that last great time to throw a bunch of energy back into it and get excited and kind of bring everyone together, unite everyone together with a kind of common purpose and cause to just... Let's start this thing over fresh almost, as if we haven't even been meeting for a year. And so there's a whole list of things that are going to be a part of that, new groups that are starting. Um, some of the stuff I think I've got up here next, uh, adult education and discipleship, there's going to be a whole slew of classes going on Sunday mornings. So you can come to the theater, uh, life of Christ type stuff, apologetics type things, different stuff that can just get you going um, Sunday mornings. And then there's also a formal discipleship program called uh, Dirt or Dust. Is it Dust? Dust. Um, that Brandon Reynolds has been working on. And it's going to be a great opportunity for those of you that are saying, man, I'm there in my heart. I'm ready. I want to move forward. But I need some kind of process. I need some kind of structure. Uh, that course, that discipleship program is really going to be for adults to kind of give you that more, that something else. So I'm pretty excited about what's going to happen through that. We've got a golf tournament in October, which is going to be huge. Out at Aspen Lakes, we're trying to fill the whole thing with over 100 golfers. We're estimating that potentially we could bring in $15,000 from this one golf tournament to uh, give to the Uganda. It's going to be a Uganda benefit tournament for the trip. Um, so it's kind of a huge deal, and so that's in October and so if you're a golfer, get ready for that. We've got a sermon biography series. If you're kind of newer to Antioch, every January right after the first of the year, we do a little series that's called a sermon biography series. We take a, a person from church history and just kind of use their life as a springboard to get into some texts and to get into some uh, some different key issues in the Christian life. And so I think I got a picture of the late Francis Schaeffer. That's who we're going to talk about this January. Last year we did Martin Luther, and so I figured we'd get a little more um, modern, and then who knows where we'll go the year after that. So there's Francis. Uh, and then after that, just a couple things, 2008. Um, Brandon's talking about doing a marriage retreat weekend conference thing, which sounds kind of cool. Uh, those of you that like to, to pass the kids to the, the in-laws or the grandparents and get away for a weekend. 
And then here's one that's really kind of exciting to me in October of next year, so a year from this October, there's an apologetics conference that is already kind of 80% of the way put together. Uh, there's three guys from Biola, J.P. Moreland, um, Scott Ray, and Craig Hazen, uh, all kind of in apologetics philosophy. One of them's a bioethicist, uh, Christian bioethicist that serves at all the hospitals there, USC and others, um, informing them on ethical issues and stuff like that. And so we've got a whole weekend where these guys are going to be here. There's other people going to be doing breakout sessions. And apologetics basically is kind of the reasoning side of, of the faith, the reasoning side of Christianity, processing it through uh, and looking at just the content. So I'm kind of excited. There's not a lot of things like that uh, in Central Oregon. And so to have that coming up next year with some people that are that qualified, uh, JP and, and Scott Ray were two of my professors when I was in seminary. And so it'll be kind of fun. On that Sunday morning, JP will actually be sharing here at Antioch. So those of you that like apologetics and like getting excited about things that are like a year away, uh, you can get excited about that. We're going to need a whole lot of volunteers. We're kind of doing it ecumenically, which means we're, we're kind of doing it, we're spearheading it, but through a group called the Apologetics Guild and Bend so that we can let all churches kind of feel like they have ownership on it and so that it's not just an Antioch thing. And so I'm kind of excited about that. But the hard thing for me is I'd want to, like, get out the coloring crayons and, and shade out all of next year for you. And I look back at this last year, and I don't think anyone on the team could have predicted what we were going to look like and the things we were going to be doing now. And so I kind of realized that it'd be silly to, to try and oversketch next year. So, well, I'll keep praying. I'll keep making my mistakes. And God will keep doing, hopefully, what he's doing. Um, and so that's a little bit of what's going on long distance the next two weeks, this Sunday, and then next Sunday we're going to be in a, a specific chapter of James, and we're going to be talking about faith and works. And so if you turn to James, and you open up to uh, chapter 2, verse 14, James 2 and verse 14, this is one of the most talked about paragraphs or sections of all of Scripture, believe it or not. This is a huge, hugely debated all throughout Christian history, hugely debated even today, um, one of the most talked about passages of the scriptures. And so that's why we're going to spend today and next week on it. And so I want to just read it for you. Again, chapter 2 of James, starting in verse 14. And this is what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is that? And in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now James anticipates a response. So he says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? <laughs> Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And what James is basically saying here is there's a marriage between faith and works, faith and action, between what's going on in your heart and how you apprehend or grab hold of God, that relationship, and what falls out of that in your life. And so I've got this, 
this hose in the backyard that's kind of screwed together and there's a spot where it sprays water out. It's, it's broken. It's pretty ghetto. And my daughters, their favorite thing to do right now is to go around and, and water the trees and, and I don't have the heart to tell them that's what the sprinklers do, you know. And so uh, we wrapped tape around that spot where the water comes out. And it squirts water out all the same. Like it's just, it's just, so when the girls water the trees, there's this huge lake in my backyard. It's like a bog. And I hate that because it's like five hours later, you walk through it and you still track mud in the house. And it's because we can't really, by tape, keep that water from coming out of the hose. And what James is just in a nutshell saying here is, is faith is kind of like water. If, when it's there, when, when, it, when it comes and it's in your life and it's there, it's going to manifest itself. It's going to bubble out somehow. You, you can wrap tape around it, but it's going to find its way out. It's going to show itself because faith kind of is, is belief or trust in, in movement, in, in service, in action. And that's kind of where James is going with it. Now, why is it so talked about? It's talked about because it hits at the very essence of our relationship with God. It hits at the very nature of our relationship with God. This thing that holds us together with God called faith, okay, it hits at the very structure and nature of that, and that's why it's such a big deal. We're saved by faith. This is talking about faith, so it's a huge deal. A little more specifically, it's a big deal because in the Old Testament, Kind of the concept was that works was the ball game. Works was the ball game. You're saved in some sense by your obedience, by doing the things that God requires of you. And so when we get to the New Testament and it talks about faith, the tendency with human beings is we always knee jerk to the other side. Does that make sense? We very rarely ever find the middle spot. It's like putt putt golf. Um, the that one cone, it's like a volcano, you know what I'm talking about? And you can't ever get it to stay right in the middle where the cup is. It, it, it goes up one side and then off the other, but it never stays in the middle. And we pendulum swing from one side to the other as people. And so when, when all of a sudden the New Testament comes and says, now you're saved by faith, the tendency is for people to go, oh, that's opposed to works. So we'll leave the works off and then swing all the way over here to faith. And then what do I do? I'm saved by faith. I've got this faith in God. Now what? Well, I don't want to do works because that's not what saves me. And so I'm going to stay over here. And then I kind of throw up my hands and say, oh, I, really don't, I really don't know what I'm going to do anymore. Um, and after a couple of weeks, well, I'll just go back to doing what I used to do, but I've still got faith. And so it's set up even back. The reason it's in James is because even in the New Testament times, this was a confusing deal. And so it's been confusing all the way throughout uh, the church history. And the first time I really got a handle on this was at age 23 when I read uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. Discipleship is just a word that basically means a, a student of, of Christ, someone that's following Christ, someone that's learning from Jesus Christ, a disciple of Christ. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a Lutheran theologian, he was put to death by Hitler about a week before his concentration camp was um, liberated. Hitler actually wrote the orders himself because he was implicated in a plot to assassinate Hitler. Uh, he wasn't the guy carrying the bomb or anything like that. It was, it was just the circle of people he knew. Uh, he was a part of the resistance movement. But he was a Lutheran theologian. And listen to how he kind of shades this whole thing out. He says this. 
cheap grace, cheap grace, C-H-E-A-P, cheap grace means grace as bargain basement goods. Cut rate forgiveness, cut rate comfort, cut rate sacrament, grace as the church's inexhaustible pantry from which it is doled out by careless hands without hesitation or limit. It is great without, grace without a price and without costs. It is said that the essence of grace is that the bill for it is paid in advance for all time. Everything can be had for free, courtesy of that paid bill. The price paid is of infinitely great, and therefore the possibilities of taking advantage of and wasting grace are also infinitely great. What would grace be if it were not cheap grace? Okay, and he goes on to, to say, uh, to juxtapose it, right, I'll give you one more paragraph on cheap grace. It says this, cheap grace, if it's only cheap grace, is preaching forgiveness without repentance. It is baptism without the discipline of community. It is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without the living incarnate, Jesus Christ. Now, Bonhoeffer uh, juxtaposes that to what he calls costly grace. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which has to be asked for, the door at which one has to knock. It is costly because it calls to discipleship. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs people their lives. It is grace because it thereby makes them live. It is costly because it condemns sin. It is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, grace is costly because it was costly to God, because it cost God the life of God's Son. You were bought with a price, and because nothing can be cheap to us which is costly to God. And above all, it is grace because the life of God's Son was not too costly for God to give in order to make us live. God did indeed give him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And so hopefully, let me just try and sum, sum up what Bonhoeffer's saying. Bonhoeffer's saying there's a way of taking grace without seeing the real nature of grace, and we take it flippantly. Uh, you know, the, the things that sometimes our parents give us because our parents are, are so casual in our life, like, ah, oh, it's just mom, ah, oh, it's just dad, that sometimes they can give us something very costly, but because of where it's coming from and, and, and our nature, we just treat it flippantly. Does that make sense? And what Bonhoeffer is saying is grace that is treated that way is completely misunderstood because it is costly and it is huge. And when it's costly grace, we have to respond to it accordingly. So a parent gives us something. If we think it's cheap, we put it somewhere where it's going to get broken. If something is given to us and we think it's costly, we put it somewhere safe. And we work and we labor at it because it's important. And so he's setting these two things up. Now Bonhoeffer goes on to historically kind of say what happened out of the Reformation. He'll talk about the Catholic Church kind of coming into the Reformation and says, here's the weird thing. In the Catholic Church, you had cheap grace on one side and costly grace on the other. And what I'll say is cheap grace was the majority of the Catholics thought nothing really mattered because they were under grace. 
Costly grace was the monastic movement where people realize it needs to cost their whole life and they have to give themselves fully to Christ and leave everything else behind. But in doing so in this dichotomy, what began to happen was the majority of the Christians thought that discipleship was just for the super elite, right? There's two kinds of ways of being a Christian. Me that just takes grace, cheap grace, and that weird guy over there in the in the dress who is really following Christ, but he's just a super Christian. But it doesn't matter because we're both Christians. And so there's this dichotomy that comes in that Bonhoeffer said was completely destructive because grace is costly. There is no such thing as cheap grace. When Christ called us to discipleship, he called all of us to discipleship. It was an either a yes or a no, but the call to follow him was there. You couldn't remove that and say, I'm still a follower of Christ. I'm still Christian, but yet I haven't really entertained this question of whether I'm going to leave behind my old life and take up a new life and follow Christ. And so Bonhoeffer says this weird dichotomy. Now he says coming into the Reformation, Luther in his writings kind of brought this idea of salvation by grace back that, that it's, it's a, this meaningful thing through faith and he brought him back to the New Testament view and he said it is God's work so that no one can boast. And so Luther out of Romans and Ephesians really brought the, the, the text to bear to the church and said we've gotten salvation all wrong. It's not cheap on one side, and it's not costly on another side. It's a complete and radical surrender to grace, and you do that by faith. Salvation is a work that God does in people's lives, and it's costly, it's not cheap, and and it's not by works. And he's reacting to kind of that Catholicism of his day. Now, here's the interesting thing, according to Bonhoeffer, who again was a, a Lutheran theologian. He says, in the Lutheran church coming out of that, something really interesting happened. The writings of Luther get divorced from the man himself. So what Luther wrote and what Luther said is now all that's looked at, and people don't realize this was a man that was an Augustinian monk that had devoted his life to preaching and teaching, that was a servant of God. The call to discipleship was huge in his life. And in his te- when he taught a, a, a theological school and in the people that he led, it was huge. It was huge. Um, compulsory elementary education, most people trace back to, to Luther trying to teach people how to read of that age so that everybody would have access to Scripture. I mean, the, the whole idea of acting and following Christ and living your life completely surrendered and committed to Jesus was huge for Luther. But as time moves on, that gets lost, and it's only the stuff on paper that kind of um, continues. Does that make sense? And so Luther was reacting so much to the Catholic Church that he talked about grace so much that the, the Lutherans following him looked at that and all they saw was that, that writing on grace and they developed this view of cheap grace according to Bonhoeffer. Grace minus the discipleship. So that by the time of, of Bonhoeffer in the, in the 30s, 1930s, he was looking at the Lutheran Church and saying we've lost discipleship. We've lost any sense of the cross. We've lost any sense of Jesus Christ as Lord in our life. And so he writes this. I'll, uh, I'll try and say that's one end of it, and let me try and give you another historical end of, of somehow how we end up at this cheap view of grace. And this side of it, um, we're going to need to draw for, for this side. We've never done this one, so we'll see how it goes. 
Um, you got to understand we're a product of our culture. And so in America, the second great awakening comes and those revivals, the first great awakening, second great awakening uh, just happened. And they burst on the scene and, and everybody that goes back and looks at it says, the only thing you can point to is maybe prayer. But the Holy Spirit just decided to do something. And so you had these huge just waves of people changing their lives. I think it was in the first great awakening. There's, there's stories of in England of um, the work mules that no longer knew how to um, do what they were supposed to do because cuss words were such a part of the commands given to the mules that when kind of uh, everybody kind of cleaned up, they had to retrain animals to follow cleaner <laughs> instructions, kind of thing like that. Well, in the second great awakening, which was in the early 1800s, in America, kind of on the heels of that, uh, came a guy by the name of Charles Finney. Okay, and Charles Finney came along, and Charles Finney was very zealous, very committed to God, very passionate individual. Now, what Finney ended up doing was kind of getting this sense of urgency that he thought Jesus Christ was going to come back in his lifetime. Okay, and and people need to confess Jesus and and in some sense get saved. And if he could just get them to make that commitment, some of them, hopefully a lot of them, would continue on in that, and it would be legitimate. Obviously, some maybe it's not legitimate, but his whole his whole idea was what was happening in the Great Awakening: people confessing Christ and accepting Him. If we can keep that going, it would be this hugely great thing. And so he pioneered what was called the new way of accepting Christ, what, what is now called the new way of accepting Christ. And it involved kind of this sinner's prayer. So if you've been around in America long enough, you've been in church where it's uh, raise your hand or repeat after me, and you kind of give a, a prayer. Does that make sense? Um, he pioneered what was called the anxious seat or the anxious bench, which was in a meeting, in a, in a revivalistic meeting, and these guys were called the revivalists, okay? Uh, in a revivalistic meeting, if we get the lights low enough and if we get people engaged emotionally enough and we give enough time, they're, they're going to slowly engage with this thing and we can get them to come forward and kind of make a commitment. Does that make sense? And so he's saying if we do a good job of this through our methodology, we can get people to come forward and confess Jesus Christ. And so he said we should because we're in a race here. Christ is coming back, and we got to just do this thing as fast as we can. So he pioneered kind of what is today called the altar call, where people would come forward. It was called the anxious seat back then. The people that were anxious about salvation, didn't know where they stood with God, would be able to come and, and kneel on this anxious bench and kind of accept Christ. So this is kind of what happened. It's huge, huge Huge firestorm uh, in the Christian world in those days because you had a bunch of men standing up and going, wait a second. Um, God was kind of choosing when these revivals were going to happen. It's a little bit weird that we now look at the calendar and say on this Friday there's going to be a revival. How can, how can we predict that? You know. And so I went to college in Clemson in South Carolina. You'll still drive by churches that will use that phraseology. They'll say next Friday night revival. You know, or there will be a revival here, you know, next month on the 13th, you know. And that was kind of in that, that day and age back in the early 1800s where men were kind of looking at this, men and women, and saying, this seems weird that through methodology we're going to save people, okay? Now, what what kind of comes of this is a um, after him came D.L. Moody and used that methodology and then Billy Sunday and after Billy Sunday, Billy Graham. 
Okay, and these guys are the same kind of a deal again as with Luther. They've got writings or methodology, and they've got a life to back it up. These men are fully devoted to Jesus Christ. They've given their whole lives to ministering to people. But what happens, just as with Luther, is we lose that side, that that discipleship side, that costly side, and we just run over here to the kind of the message, and we grab that, and it's cheap grace. And one of the ways it kind of gets in is this. This is a, a great way of illustrating um, what's going on. Hopefully you'll see it, and you've probably seen it a bunch of times. So this is God over here, and this is man or woman over here, um, and sin separates us from God. Does that make sense? You guys have seen this picture, right? Okay. And the answer is this, that Jesus Christ through the cross is the bridge uh, from, from for us to get to God sends the, the gap. Does that make sense? Okay. It's a great picture for illustrating our need for the cross, isn't it? Okay. But here's what happens, and I watched this kind of as I was a young Christian in my 20s, is, what did I write here? Man. Okay. Mass. Um, is the, the whole picture is, okay, I'm here. Now, I, I'm going to walk across here. And then I'm going to be with God over here. Okay? That's what the picture implies, right? So now where's Jesus when I'm, when I'm done with this picture? He's irrelevant now. I already used him. <laughs> um, he's behind me. Uh, and it's just me and God. And that's not the case. And so I guess what I'm here this morning trying to tell you is that's not the picture of Christianity. This is a a great picture for illustrating the need for the cross. It's not a great picture for illustrating the relationship or the nature of our relationship with God. The phraseology in the New Testament that Paul uses over and over again is um, the Greek and Christos. Ah. Christos, I don't know. it's been a couple of years. So, in Christ, okay? Give me a pen and I'll go crazy. All right. The phrase, and you guys have, have read this if you've read the New Testament. Over and over he talks about you being in Christ. This is huge for him. And so the idea he's trying to give here is that, um, that God reaches down his saving arm by sending Jesus and he wraps you into Christ so that when the, the judge, the righteous judge now looks at you, all he sees is Christ. When, when the righteousness of God looks at you, he doesn't see the sin and the messiness in your life. He sees the righteousness of Christ. You've been, you've been washed and made whiter than snow, right? And so you are in Christ and you're covered. So it's like those movies where some guy wants to get to some other guy and, and here's this guy in the middle going, no, he's with me. It's cover. You can't, no, you can't get to him. He's, he's on my side here. He's a part of my crew. I'm vouching for him. You, you don't get to go there. I'm backing you off. And so Christ is here, and that's all the righteous judge sees. So if we go to the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus now is sitting at the right hand of God where he intercedes on our behalf. That once and for all, his death paid the price for sin. And so now he's up here with God sitting it, and every time you screw up, 
He's looking at God and saying, no, I already had that one covered. It's on me. It's behind me. It's in it. I died for it. And he is the mediator between us and God. He is the priest that stands between God and man. And if we didn't have Christ standing there for an instant, it says in Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. So you go back and look at the Old Testament when there's this whole tribe of the Israelites and Moses is their go-between with them and God. And God says, okay, how about the whole tribe come meet me at Mount Sinai? And they get close and the mountain starts to shake and all this stuff. And they go, man, this is way too crazy. We're going to burn up here. We're going to die. Moses, you be the go-between. And they kind of retreat. And it's kind of that sense in where God is, or Jesus is that priest that stands between this, this God who is holy and just. He's a consuming fire. He's a big deal. And us who are still messy and still being saved and worked on, and he's, he's that, that mediator. And so the word bridge can be used in two senses, can't it? It can be used in the sense that we were talking about earlier where you walk over it and then you're done with it. The word bridge can also be used as in something that connects two things. This is a bridge between these two things. And man is here and God is here. And and that's the sense in which Jesus is a bridge. He, He connects these two things. He's that mediator. So what phrase do we use when we talk about salvation? Well, the revivalists uh, went to the book of Revelation and they looked at the phrase when Jesus is writing to the church. So he's writing to this whole church community and he says, behold, behind, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. So here I am. I'm Jesus. Here's your community in a house behind a door and I'm knocking. You guys are like having your Christian meeting and I'm on the outside. I'm not even I'm not even in there and I'm knocking. And you guys, someone needs to stand up and open this door. You guys got to get this picture. You know, that's what Jesus is writing. Well, the revivalists, Finney and those guys, took that through the paradigm of, of America. In America, we're radically individualistic. Radically. It's all about me, the individual. We don't understand the concept of, if you go back to the Old Testament, um, Joshua's moving into the land. One little guy sins. And God shuts down the whole operation. Okay, We don't understand the concept in the book of Acts where you see household baptisms. We, we don't think in terms of community first. We think in terms of the individual first. And so it's hard for us to, to necessarily read what Jesus is saying there without bringing in our own baggage. But the revivalists read that and they said, oh, Jesus is standing and he's knocking at the door of my heart. And I have to open my heart to Jesus. And if I do, Jesus will come in and be in my heart. You guys heard that phraseology? Ask Jesus into your heart. Show me a verse in the New Testament where it's ask Jesus into your heart. They got it from this Revelation passage where Jesus was saying, let me into your meeting so I can be a part of it. The phrase that Paul uses is is that we're in Christ. So who's the bigger deal? Christ. We use this phrase of, I'm going to, if this was my heart, if this was my heart, I'm going to bring Christ in and add it to what I've got going on. It's a fascinating thing. There, there's a revival that supposedly broke out in Manila in the Philippines way, ways back, um, you know, 40, 40 years or so. And missionaries were saying, you got to send more money. you got to send more missionaries. There's this whole revival going. And after a decade, they started totaling up the statistics. And more people had accepted Christ in Manila than, than three and a half times the population of Manila. 
And they began to realize that the worldview over there was, yeah, okay, I'll take that. Um, if this religion's okay, well, I'll take this one too. Or, you know, heck, if, if you know, being away from God or hell or whatever is a bad deal, maybe I'll, I'll take this and it'll guard me. And so, you know, kind of like fire insurance, if I need it, hey, I've got it. Um, a lot of you carry a lot of cards in your wallet, same kind of a thing. You know, anywhere I go, hey, I've got something that, that'll, that'll be a key to that. But so they began to realize, oh, there's this worldview of being eclectic and just taking things. Well, guess what? That's the way we are in America too. I'm going to kind of do some good things over here. People will like me. Well, I'll kind of pray this prayer and accept Jesus in my heart over here. And, well, I'm going to kind of, you know, do this over here. And, well, I'm going to kind of do this over here. And, and meanwhile, it's all about me. And it's all about me being set up, you know, and, and packaged right. It's like a salad bar. I'll have some of this, have some of that. And at the end of the day, I'm treating grace. Ah, Jesus, I'll say this prayer or I'll respond and I'll accept you into my heart so that that's taken care of. I can cross that off my list. And now I'll move on. What's next? And it, and it engendered a, a sense of cheap grace. And again, I'm not going after any of these men at all. These men were devoted and committed. And what we do is we end up taking just the cheap grace and not the example of their life that really shows us what costly grace should look like. Does that make sense? And so we have this pendulum swing all throughout church history and people will naturally want to run that I'm saved by faith sweet. That's, that means all I got to do is believe in God, that he exists. And what James says, even the demons believe that and they shudder. I mean, Satan knows there's a God. It doesn't mean he's with God or that he's saved or that, that he's got it going on, right? So if I just believe that God exists, that's, that, that really doesn't do anything. Okay, the faith that that we're talking about with costly grace and that we're talking about in James here is a faith that says this, I trust God. And so I'm going to leverage my whole life to follow him. That's the sense of faith. I have faith in him. And so I'm going to forsake all else and follow and be a disciple. Does that, does that make sense? And so it's costly discipleship, and I think it's what we need to hear today in the church in America. Let me read it one more time. I'll just make a a last comment here. Again, this is what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. Uh, you don't have a jacket, it's 20 degrees out in Bend, but hey, keep warm. <laughs> um, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? And in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And so if God's really going to get a hold of your life, he's going to give you a faith that is alive. And the fruit of that living thing in your life is it, it's going to manifest itself and you're going to want to live differently and you're going to want to love people because you're, you're so overwhelmed by grace. Oh my gosh, I can't believe what God did. And you, I want to do some of that too. So I'm going to help orphans and widows. And so remember the whole book of James is about action. It's about considering these trials pure joy. I'm going to respond in a certain way to this. And true religion is this, to look after orphans and widows. And so James is trying to wrap all this up and saying, if you get it, and if God is working in your life, it will fall out of you in a certain way. And it's a, it's a great thing. It's a beautiful thing. And so I would venture to say the biggest problem 
that the, mo- that the majority of us have this morning is the byproduct of cheap grace. It's like cotton candy. It, 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 man, I prayed a prayer. I came forward. I did something, but now it's like, you know, all my sins are forgiven from now till the day I die. There's really nothing else to do. I've, I've kind of done it all. Um, trip over. Well, I'll go find something else to do. Why do we have such a hard time getting people into church? Well, what, what's the point? What's the goal? What's the mountain to climb? What's the project? What are we about? What are we doing? Where are we going? Doesn't matter. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, got Christ in my heart. That's really all that it's about. And so there's really nothing left. But costly grace involves this idea of following Jesus. And it extends through time in a different way. So that I think if we really could understand this and wrap our arms around it, we begin to realize there's nowhere I'd rather be than the Christian community. With other people that are looking at their life, their time, their energy, their resources, relationships, whatever, and saying, what can I do with this to move forward into time making a difference in this world? You're wondering, what plan, what plan does God have for me? When you begin following Christ and you, you see yourself as a disciple, every day is loaded with possibilities. God has got a plan for me, and Jesus is heading out in front and blazing a trail, and things are going to come along that only I can do, only I can respond to, and it's this great adventure. And if we get the message right, if we get the message right and realize costly grace and have that appreciation well up so that we want to leave it behind and follow, I think church now falls into place. And it becomes a piece of that whole thing. It becomes a means to the end of living out this disciple relationship following the king, Jesus Christ. So at the end of the day, the whole idea is this. Um, is Jesus in front of you, not just as a priest who forgives your sins, not just as a prophet who speaks truthful words, but as Hebrews says, also as a king, where you follow him, He doesn't just come along with you in your wallet. Where you bow a knee and submit and say, it's all about you. Tell me what you're going to do. Where there's a kingdom and there's a rule and there's a reign where you now get to be a part of. Where you're a citizen of. So the question really is this morning, is Christ king in your heart? Let's go ahead and pray. Father, um, I'm glad we have a second week. Uh, This is such a huge issue for us to keep us from just swinging from one end to the other here. I pray we would understand the nature of your grace in our life. That we would repent and be humbled and submit and realize we need to be packaged up into into Christ. Into his, his leadership in our life. Into where he's going, his desires, his will where, where he would take us and that we would be followers that we would be disciples. And Father, that's my prayer for this church. Make us disciples of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.